Good morning. Joe, I didn't know you were such a comedian. Actually, we still don't know it. I did figure out how, uh, you know, when I listened to a couple of John's sermons, and I realized that he gets about three hours of a sermon in in 40 minutes. Did you notice that? Uh, I am not going to try to do that this morning. I'm not going to try to match his intensity and his volume, but I trust that we'll all hear from God uh, today. Father, that is our desire. Uh, We just want to honor you, to love you. Uh, to be touched by your hand. Uh, Lord, for uh, the speaker to disappear and for you to be seen more clearly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God is good. All the time. God is good. You know, we use that phrase all the time, but I don't know if you've really given a lot of thought to the concept of whether God is indeed good. Have you ever questioned that? Have you ever gone through experiences in your life where you question the goodness of God? And how important is it that we believe God is good? Uh, most, Most pastors, when they go away and they invite a guest speaker to come in, they allow them to speak on whatever they would like. Not with John. He called me about a week and a half ago, and he says, I have a topic for you to speak on, and I need you to speak because we're in the middle of this very important series. And so I I trust that I'll do the the text uh, justice with the time that I've I've had to study. Uh, And I also pray that I don't overlap a lot of what John has already said, uh, because I know you're in the midst of this series, and I think you're about six or seven weeks into it. But we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit, and we have these two trees that uh, John has so uh, has uh, put before you, a, a tree that represents a tree that's rooted in Christ, that is producing fruit in his healthy environment. And then we have this tree over here, which has fruit on it, but it's artificial fruit. And today we have grapes. So uh, we can place the artifact. You know, this, this church is really uh, has integrity because if I was pastor, I would have cut those little branches off on the bottom. I was sitting over there looking at that, and I'm going, how in the world did that happen? But then I was thinking about it. Uh, you know, sometimes we do produce a little bit of leaf in our, in our walk, and, uh, and, and sometimes we can be just content with that rather than, than this, which God uh, has for us. So I think, it, I think it was good that we left it on there for that, for that little bit of a, a lesson this morning. You know, my son, uh, when he graduated from college, he got an offer to work for uh, Ford Corporation out in Detroit. And he got a contract in the, in the mail. It was a three-year contract. And He looked at it and went all the way through, and by his surprise, there was an envelope in there, and he opened up the envelope, and it was a coupon to go buy a new Ford as part of his contract. And he came running in and, you know, telling me about this. He was all excited, 22 years of age, getting a new car, new job, kind of working up the ladder, corporate ladder of success. And uh, I found it interesting. I, I, I thought about that for quite a while, and I've referred back to it several times is why in the world does Ford give its new employee uh, some allowance that you could only use because it was a certificate only for the Ford dealer to go buy a new Ford car? 
Well, think about it. How would it look if people drove by the parking lot of the Ford headquarters and there were all Chevy trucks or GMC trucks in the parking lot? And that was their theory is that what what they were producing or, or what they were all about, their employees should be all about as well. And when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, when you read through those nine fruits, they're really just the characteristics of our great and glorious God. That's what they are. They are a description of our God. And as we start thinking about the fruits of the Spirit, what we're really talking about is emulating or producing the same fruit of God who now dwells within our life. So that's what this whole series is is about. It's about the gospel being incarnated in our life. God doesn't tell us to just go out and preach the gospel. He says, you are the gospel. You are to demonstrate Not not that we replace Christ, don't get me wrong, but that we are to demonstrate the love of God in our world. And so if we're not able to do that, relationships are going to be wrecked, and, 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 and and the gospel message is not going to go forward because the world will not recognize that God has been here. What did they say to the disciples in the book of Acts? They said that these these are not learned men, but they have spent time with Christ. They had spent time with God. And so they were, their lives were transformed by that. Now, <clears throat> we don't always live out uh, the kind of lives that we desire. I can uh, remember being challenged many times just in the last couple of years of tests or difficulties that I go through in my life where I have a hard time believing in the goodness of God. Some of you have been through those. I know as a church you've been through that in the last couple weeks. And it's difficult. Sometimes things come upon you. Uh, In the last eight years, I've been sued seven times. And uh, the year's not over, so I figure it's one a year. That's kind of how it works. Uh, seven were for, or, or six of them were for me. One was for my wife. She was sued at her job. She works for an attorney's office. And this, uh, about, about two years ago, she got sued in such a way that uh, it looked like we were going to lose everything that, that we had. Now, we're not as young as we used to. I remember when we were younger, we were going to lose our house and everything because of circumstance, and it really wasn't a big deal because we didn't own much of it anyway. <laughs> But we're, we're working towards those, those end years of our lives. You know, the kids are grown, the grandkids are there, and you start thinking about the future, and all of a sudden, all that could be taken away. And we were laying in bed uh, thinking, uh, or I shouldn't say we were thinking, we were just emoting is really what we were doing. We were crying out to God. We were, we were, we were, we were wondering, you know, where was God in, in, in all of this? And our fears were starting to get the best of us. In fact, my wife, for the first time in her life, she had panic attacks. And she couldn't get to sleep. She'd wake up in the middle of the night uh, shaking. And, and as we, we looked at that test, we realized that we were being challenged to, to whether we were going to depend on ourselves and go our own way or whether we we're truly going to trust that God is a good God. And, and this morning, I want to challenge us to think about whether God is a good God. Because if we don't believe that God is good we are not going to manifest his fruit. And I'm going to demonstrate that for you later on in in this message, that those two things are intricately related. And we need to get desperate for a change, a change from this uh, over to this. I remember early in my ministry, and I'm a pastor, and I'm I'm a little bit ashamed to admit this, but 
uh, I think it's really good that we admit our faults one to another. Scripture says to confess your sins one unto another. Not that we, that we can get forgiveness from one another, but because uh, we can spur one another on to love and to good deeds, and we can release one another if, if we have sinned against one another. But I, I remember being on a soccer field, and I was taking pictures, and my son was in high school at the time, and uh, I was running up and down taking, taking pictures. My son was on the varsity uh, squad, and it was a really tough game. It got really violent, and, and before you know it, I was saying things to the ref and uh, the, along with everyone else in the crowd, and, and, and at one point, actually, my son got his nose broken uh, in, in the middle of the game. And, and I, was, I was getting really worked up, and, I, and, and I, I stepped out on the field, and I pointed my finger at a ref, and guess what? The pastor got a yellow card. I had to go sit up in the stands. I tell you what, I got ribbing for about an hour, the whole second half, about the pastor. Pastor, did you see what the pastor did? And I was like, oh my goodness, what did I do? I just rest, wreck, wrecked the gospel for the whole town of Aquanic for the next 10 years, and it's going to be on TV, you know, because they televise these games. And I, I began to get desperate uh, for God. And that's not the only situation. I remember in our town, uh, right when we moved into town, the, we, it was a, it's a beautiful, beautiful home. It wasn't so beautiful at the time. We did a lot of work on it. But it was, it was this beautiful location right across the street from uh, the middle school and the park. And we had this beautiful baseball uh, field. Actually, we had five fields and two soccer fields. And, and it's one of the reasons we bought the house, because it was so beautiful. And we found out that the town wanted to put a bus depot across the street from our house. And they were going to take away the field, and they were going to build these huge fences, put the buses there. So uh, we had called up the board, and we had met with them, and they said, you know, thank you for your concern, and we'll take that under advisement. Later on, we got a letter from, because we all banded together as a community, and they said, we're, we're, we're not going to do that. We, we've decided to do something else. So we went on vacation. We came home. Guess what? The whole thing was gone. There was a parking lot and there was fences when we got home with these big, huge, towering lights. This all happened in a period of two weeks. And we were sitting there. I said, what in the world went on? So they had a, a, a public forum to discuss this thing. And I went to the meeting and uh, my community elected me to speak, which was a bad mistake. <laughs> but I went out there and all I can say is I did not reflect the fruit. Of the Spirit, but this is what this is what God spoke to my heart about. There was another man in our community uh, lived just down the street from us. After I had spoken, and there was all this back and forth, and uh, and they you know they said things that were untrue. They accused us of things, and then when all that was said, this this gentleman got up there and he just quoted a scripture and he said, "Would you just treat us like you would like to be treated?" With humility, and he sat down. Why couldn't I do that? Why couldn't I live like that? What's going on in my soul? This, this, this whole idea of the fruit of the Spirit, we, we need to get desperate to see change in our lives. I had a guy in my small group. I won't give you his real name. We'll just call him Dan. But Dan always had an anger problem. I knew him for about 10 years. It was my church. And uh, I've, I've seen displays of anger on, on many occasions. But one time he was in our small group and we were studying the Scripture. And he told us a story. That, you, know, you know, he was confessing to us, you know, what had happened that last week. He had gotten arrested. And he got arrested at his home association meeting for getting up and threatening to kill somebody in the meeting. It's like, this is a guy's a member of our church. 
And, uh, and so we were like, wow, what, you know, t- t- tell us what happened. What, what? And we were trying to, and he goes, ah, it's no big deal. I'm just Italian. I go, you're just Italian? He goes, yeah. He says, my dad was like that. My grandfather was like that. My kids are like that. We're just all Italian. It's no big deal. I said, wait a minute, it is a big deal. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a big deal when a Christian gets up in a public setting and threatens to kill somebody. And we started to talk about, you know, how, how desperate are we for Jesus and, and for, to see him change our life. If we don't change, what, are, what is the impact going to be on the lives uh, of others? Well, John has stated this really well. He says, focus on the roots, uh, not on the fruits. Focus on the roots, not on the fruits. If you would open up your Bibles to John chapter 15, I'd like to read that. I know you've read it before. But John chapter 15 is really the story about the roots and the fruits. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 And I want you to pay attention. You may have a different version. I'm using the NIV. Uh, It uses the word remain, but other Bible verses use abide. But it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener, and he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. For you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, listen to how many times he says this. Remain in me. As I remain in you, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can it bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned, just like this tree tree will be at the end of this series. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Remain, remain, abide, abide. What is it that Jesus is trying to teach us in this passage, he's just getting ready to leave this earth. He's getting ready to go to the cross. This, this passage in John is preparation talk for, these, for the apostles that are going to be left alone except for the Holy Spirit to come upon them to do this, this ministry. And he's saying, remain, remain. Eleven times he says, remain. I had a, a neighbor who had six children. He had been married three times. This is his third uh, wife. And the kids were having a terrible time. And we were ministering to this family, getting to know them, and uh, they had come to faith. But uh, lives don't just change necessarily all overnight. And they had a seven-year-old boy, cute kid, uh, maybe too cute for his own good. But he came over to my house, and I was refinishing the floors. We were new to the community and I had just sanded everything down and, you know, got all the sand off of it. And I had 
uh, stained it all, and I had just put the, a coat of varnish over the entire floor. It was, it was just all wet. It was glistening. It was gorgeous. And here comes Matt. <laughs> Matt comes up to the door, and I'm standing. You know, I worked my ass off out right out the door, the front door, and I'm standing. just finished. And he goes, what are you doing, Bruce? He called me Mr. Bruce. What are you doing, Mr. Bruce? I said, well, I just did this floor. Now, this kid's got a reputation. Okay, he's only seven, but I think he's been in jail a few times. <laughs> so he comes over, and, he, and he, he, he's looking, and, and you could tell he just wants to step on it. I said, whatever you do, Matt, don't step on it. Do not go in the house. He goes, what do you mean, right here on the floor? I said, yeah, right there on the floor. Do not go on the floor. So we're talking a little bit, and I could see, you know, he's getting anxious. So I said, so whatever you do, don't go on that floor. Well, you know, I must have told him seven, eight times. I turn my head. Matt goes walking across my living room floor. Footprints sticking all the way across. Goes into the dining room and around through the kitchen. He looks over here. He goes, you mean this floor? And then I killed him. No, he's like, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Because all my work had to start all over again. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Why did Jesus tell us 11 times to remain? Why do you think? Why do you think he emphasizes over and over and over and over again, ad nauseum, to remain? You know, the word remain or abide is the word meno, which means it's actually our translation of house or, or uh, mansion comes from. It has the idea to dwell. It has the idea to stay. It has this idea of a resting place. It's a, it's a place where you, you, you get energy, where you're transformed, where you're renewed in your life. Why is it that Jesus thought this was so important for us? I believe it's because it's so easy for us to live life in a way that does not remain in Christ, but we tend to try to produce this kind of fruit on our own. We, when we're talking about transformation of our lives, we're talking about a, uh, a theological topic that we call sanctification. It's where we be, we're sanctified, we're set aside for God's purpose, but he's also changing us. We're being changed so that we can bring change to our world, right? That's your vision. We are being changed. That's the process of sanctification. And there's, there's always been a disagreement as to how this uh, change takes place in our life. There's those who believe that it's just a passive engagement with God. That we sit down and we pray to God and we're quiet and he just changes us. It's a very passive approach to seeing change happen in our lives. Then there's another approach, a very active approach, which is I'll, do, I'll read self-help books, I'll, I'll, I'll be really disciplined in my lives, I'll get accountability partners, I'll, I'll build all these structures because I can change. It's, it's very active. Neither of these ways are God's ways. We are to be active, but the activity that we're to be involved in, according to John chapter 15, if we want to see the fruit develop in our lives, is we need to actively be pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
It's to be immersed in, in, in knowing who God is and walking with him and hearing his voice and understanding what he's saying to our lives so that when we are messing up, we hear the voice of God because God is actually living in us. We see him. We know him. We, we know his voice. We recognize it. It's like the sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd. And that's how our life has changed because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Now, there's two different ways that... We can look at Christianity, and I'm going to draw it on the board here so everybody can see it. Hopefully you can see it. Uh, this side of the tree might be in a way a little bit. But there's, there's one way of looking at Christianity that's more of a box, and there's another one that looks more like a circle. The first way we call the, the bonded set. And what we... The way we look at Christianity oftentimes is there are things that we are supposed to do and there are things that we aren't supposed to do. What are some of the, what are some of the things that we're not supposed to do? Can somebody yell them out? What's that? Blah, 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 blah. I didn't hear it. I'm sorry. Ah, don't kill somebody. Was that meant for me? Okay, that's all I got to say. What else? What aren't we supposed to do? Oh, wait. I got to put those things out here, not inside. Steal. We're not supposed to steal. What else are we not supposed to do? Buy. To buy? Buy. Lie. I can't. I can't hear it because it echoes out there. What are some of the things we are supposed to do? Get a hearing aid. Get a hearing aid. <laughs> hearing aid. Don't criticize pastor. (laughs) So we have a list of things that we're supposed to do, and there's a list of things that we aren't supposed to do. And the way this works, and this is how a lot of the world looks at the Christian life, including people in the church, is that the, the goal of life is to live according to the things that are in the box and not to do the things outside the box. And when we do the things inside the box, we feel better about ourselves. We feel righteous and holy. And we do things outside of the box, we feel defeated and, and, and destroyed, and, and, and we feel guilt, and, and, and we're no longer in the kingdom, and those kind of things. And, and it's interesting is that different religions have different things outside the box and inside the box. For instance, when I was raised, dancing was outside the box. But my parents were raised in a, in a church where dancing was in the box, and smoking, and a, a bunch of other things. So we, we have different things that are in, inside and outside of our, our box. But the key here to recognize is that there is a box, and there's an understanding, we might call it law, that defines whether you're good or whether you're bad, whether you're in the kingdom, if you will, or if you're out of the kingdom. Because when you live according to this, we tend to look at people that do these things as out of the kingdom, and if they do the thing that's in my box, they're in the kingdom. Are you following me? Okay. So the book of Galatians, that our text, you know, in in, uh, Galatians chapter 5, this is the context that uh, the book is written to the church in Galatia. Because they were struggling with this concept. They had circumcision in the box. If you were not circumcised and you had circumcision outside the box, then you were not a Christian. And even Peter, one of the apostles, bought into this and started to teach this by associating with people who gave this teaching. So this is the context. Now, 
this is the one way of looking at things, the law. This other way, we, uh, we, we could call it centered set. Christianity, and this is the Christianity that the Bible teaches, and the book of Galatians is helping us to understand, is that Christ is in the center, and our lives are on a journey as we follow Christ, as we become more like him, and our behaviors change as we pursue him, not pursue the behaviors. We're pursuing Jesus, we're pursuing the roots rather than the fruits, and that's how life is changed. And so the, really the issue is an issue of the heart. An issue of the heart. What did Jesus say about the heart? He, he, he said in Matthew uh, chapter 15, verse 9, that it's what comes out of the heart that matters. Jesus hardly ever even talked about behaviors. He always talked about the issue of the heart. He wanted to know what was going on inside of a man. Let me ask you a question. When you parent your children, do you parent their behavior or do you parent their heart? You can do either. But may I suggest that if you pursue the heart, and the heart is good, the behavior that you're looking for will follow. But if you pursue the behavior, they will find all different ways to live this kind of life. So Jesus is concerned about our, our heart. Now let's uh, look back in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and let's talk about uh, goodness. All that's the preliminary, but we're going to get to this concept of, of goodness. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it says, So I say, walk in the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. By the way, walking in the Spirit is another way of saying pursue Jesus. It's the Spirit of Jesus. It's the Spirit of the Holy God. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the same Spirit. It's the same God. That's what he's talking about. How do we live in the Spirit? I say, walk by the Spirit. Dwell with Jesus. Pursue the vine and not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. You see the comparison between these two things. When we try to live according to the law, the law was never meant to make us righteous, and it never will. The law was given after... uh, uh, the, the covenant of grace that was made with Abraham. It was meant to help people to realize they needed Jesus. It was never meant to be a way of salvation. And this is what he's saying. And then he describes the acts of the flesh in verses 19 through 21. And then he describes the acts. What, what is the result of being someone that focuses on Christ, the Spirit? He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's all gone. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited or provoking in envying other another. This is what this, this box here produces, envying. Either it produces pride because we're doing it so well, or it produces 
uh, a sense of failure because we're not able to do it, but it doesn't produce godliness. Godliness can only be produced by focusing on Christ and our relationship with him. Now, what is goodness? What is goodness? If we have more God in us, then we'll have more goodness. I'd like for you to turn over to Luke chapter 18. And we're going to chase you around the scripture a little bit if you have your Bibles with you today. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. And this is the story of the, the rich young ruler. I'm just going to refer to it briefly. The reason we have to go to a lot of scripture is, is for this reason. Uh, the word goodness, uh, there's three words that refer to goodness or, or good in, in the Bible. In the Old Testament in Hebrew, it's the word tov. In the New Testament, there's two words that have a similar root, and they're used in two different ways in ancient Greek, but not in the Scripture. They're used the same way. So we don't get a lot of help from the Greek and the Hebrew words, no more than you would uh, reading it in English, because good can mean so many things. It's really, you know, something, you look at something and you say, that's good. Like you look at an apple and you say, that's good. What are you referring to? But that it's... it's it, tastes good, right? Or it, it has pleasure for me. Or if you look at a, at a child and you say, that child is such a good child. Well, the child is behaving the way you want it to or you expect to. Uh, there's a sense of morality to it. Uh, there's, something could be good because of its aesthetic, aesthetic value. It's pleasing to the eye. Well, that's really a good painting. You know, it looks beautiful. So, uh, even though we have these words, it really doesn't help us. So we have to look at the context. Is what does God say about himself in, re, in, in respect to goodness? And what does the scripture say about goodness as it applies to us? So that's what we're going to do, just take a quick journey on right now. Luke chapter 18, a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, because good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 19. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. Well, what is he saying here? Is he saying that he's not God or is he saying that he is God? Well, the teacher is coming to him and he recognizes the character of Christ and he calls him good teacher. And Jesus uses this opportunity to kind of reflect and help him to think through what he's saying, that, that he is actually speaking to someone who has the character of God, because only God is good, and he's reflecting the character of God, so he is from, from God. You see the logic in this. He's trying to help him to understand that all goodness comes from God. All the source of goodness in our world is really in God himself. And, and so he, he, he's making a claim to deity, to goodness, and, and to perfection. Now, let's look at some other scriptures that help us. And I'm just going to flip this over because I think that we'll just put a little collage together of, of these truths. And the first one is from Exodus chapter 33. And the, the context of this story is really important. Exodus chapter 33. Uh, Moses has just come down from, the, from, from uh, Mount Sinai. And uh, he comes down with the tablets, and what does he find when he gets down to the people? He, he finds them worshiping false gods. They had taken a, 
uh, the gold from the people, they melted it down, and they were worshiping a, a calf, and they were dancing, and they were having orgies, and they were committing sexual sin. And, and Moses takes the tablets, and he throws them on the ground, and they just shatter into a thousand pieces. These were the tablets that, that God himself, with his finger, had carved out the Ten Commandments. And, and, and Moses is just distraught, and he goes back up the mountain to meet with God, and he's complaining to God, and, and, and he's, he says, I'm, I, I just can't do this. I, I can't go on. I, I, unless you go with me, unless your presence goes with me, I cannot do what you ask me to do. And, and then uh, the Lord replies, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Moses says, well, if your presence doesn't go with us, do not send us out from here. And uh, I'm working down the, the text. I'm getting to the uh, verse 19. It says, The Lord said to Moses, I will do everything you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. That's critical. He knows his name. And then Moses said, Now show me your glory. Moses wants to see the glory of God, the weightiness of God. The word glory means weightiness. I want to see the, the weightiness of God. I want to see, you know, what, are, what, what presence is going with me. And in verse 19, it says, And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass. He asks him for his glory, and he gives him his goodness. He asks him for, to show me your weightiness, and he, he says, I want you to see my goodness. He says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord. And it's all capitalized in your text to indicate that this is the covenant name of God for Israel. This is the name that he revealed to Moses, the great I am. In your presence, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he says, you cannot see my face, so no one, for no one may see me and live. And then you know the rest of the story. He, he put Moses in the cleft of the rock. He put his hand over him. This is a, uh, you know, he's talking in human terms because God doesn't have hands and God doesn't have eyes and things like that. But he's using uh, metaphors that, he would under, that we would understand. But it's interesting that when Moses is desperate to go on in a very difficult situation, that the thing that he cries out for is God's glory and he shows him his goodness. He needs to know that God is good before he can go on and do the good things that God has asked him to do. It's critical. It's critical. He had to understand, he had to believe that, that this great God would not desert him, that he would be there even in the most difficult situations when things fall apart in life, that God's goodness, God wanted his goodness to be displayed before him. That's what he needed. And that's what he was showing him. And he uses this word, Lord, which is, I would say the, the way I would describe, the, if we were to say the goodness of God and try to understand it, the thing we want to understand is that, that his, his covenant love is critical. To know the covenant love of God. You know, the fruits of the Spirit overlap one another and the goodness overlaps with his love. Just briefly, Psalm 23, uh, many of us have memorized that scripture. But at the end of the psalm, in verse 6, it says, Surely goodness and mercy, surely goodness and mercy 
shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's two things that go together in Scripture all the time. It's God's goodness and His mercy. Another thing we can understand about God is that He does not treat us as we deserve. He does not treat us as we deserve. John chapter 10, verse 11, refers to, Jesus refers to Himself as the Good Shepherd. He says, I am the Good Shepherd. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. Again, another analogy or another metaphor to help us to understand the goodness of God. Think of a shepherd. How a shepherd cares for a sheep and he gives guidance and he gives care. But the thing that he emphasizes over everything else, the goodness of the shepherd is willing to lay his life down for somebody else. That's the key here. When we think about the goodness of God, we cannot go past this idea that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. There's a sacrifice that is required in goodness. If we're going to live a a life of goodness that is in character with God and is defined by God, it's this covenantal love where we never give up on people. We display mercy when they don't deserve it, and then we sacrifice. We sacrifice ourselves for the sake of of others. This is the goodness of God. Romans chapter 5 is another interesting passage. You're probably familiar with this passage. I'd like to read it for you within its context. But Romans chapter 5, you just stay with me because we're almost, we're almost there. Romans chapter 5, verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Let me read that again. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might dare to die. Paul is making a distinction between someone who is righteous and someone who is good. Do you see that? He says, for a righteous man, someone might die, but very rarely. Goodness is not righteousness all by itself. It's something beyond it. Goodness is righteousness, and in addition to that, it's, it's the kind of person that not only does the right thing, but goes beyond that, does not even what's required for the sake of another. So I don't know how we would define this. Uh, maybe just put an asterisk next to sacrifice. As we see that goodness requires us to go beyond just that which is right. And then the final one I'd like to look at, we could look at hundreds of these, is from Amos, and I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time. But Amos is a prophet of God, and he's condemning Israel for not taking care of the poor and the needy, uh, and not seeking justice, and taking advantage of situations that benefit them, not helping those who are in need. This, this word goodness is so closely linked with generosity that in some translations, instead of goodness in the list of the fruits of the Spirit, they actually write generosity. Or benevolence. 
So when we take all these things together, we begin to approximate or begin to understand what it means to live the fruit of the spirit of goodness. The very first book of the Bible teaches us that all sin ultimately has its roots in a failure to believe that God is good. Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are told not to eat of the tree. And they're not, not to eat of that tree for their own benefit. And Satan comes along and says, you know what? God, God doesn't have his best, your best interest in mind. You know, if you eat of that tree, you'll become like God. And he tempts them, and he tempts us all the time to think that somehow God is not good. The circumstances that we're experiencing is somehow God is not in control. He's not good. He's not powerful. He's not any of these things. He's something other than that. And we get tempted to believe that. But ultimately, every sin can be traced back to unbelief in God's goodness. When the Israelites were in the desert and they were rebelling against God and they were saying, let's go back to Egypt. You know, I miss the onions, the leeks. I, I, you know, I miss this. I know, I know we were slaves, but at least we had something to eat. They were questioning God's goodness. And that caused a rebellion. We just talked about the, the worship of idols of, of the Israelites, but even later on in the kingdom, they were making gods and they were worshiping Asherah poles and so on and so forth. They somehow, and they were making treaties with other nations because they, they didn't believe that God was good enough to care for them. And so they disobeyed God and they made these treaties against his, his uh, decrees. Sometimes we can question God's goodness and we want to marry, we want to get married so bad, we'll marry somebody who's not walking in the faith and not a believer, not a follower of Christ, not, doesn't have that trajectory towards Christ. But we want to do it because we, we believe that God hasn't been, he's not good, he's not going to provide for us. So we take another route, we leave our spouse for another person because we believe our, our marriage is too much trouble, there's no way God can be in this thing. And God isn't good if he wants me to stay in this relationship. So we question God's goodness and we take another path. We live a life of worry because of our jobs. The scripture tells us over and over again, why do you worry about these things? Don't even the sparrows, aren't they cared for in the, in the flowers of the field? You know, what are they worth in comparison to you? Or we have a, a child that goes through a difficult time, sickness, I know my second son had very severe learning disabilities. He couldn't get into kindergarten. And I remember what that was like as a father to have a son who couldn't learn the alphabet to get into kindergarten. And, uh, and the pain of that. And it just causes us to question, is God good? Is God good? I'm convinced that we can't live a life of goodness if we don't believe in a good God can't be generous if we don't believe God's going to care for us. Nope, we got to hoard everything. We won't extend forgiveness and mercy to someone. In fact, we'll tell them to go to hell if they cut us off in the car. Not quite in line with the goodness of God. We won't live for the sake of others 
but we'll live for ourselves because we're not sure God is going to reward us if we live that kind of a life, wondering if God is really good. Let me ask you a question. If you're an apple and the world bites into you, what will they say about you? Well, they say, that is good. That is good. It's crisp, it's juicy, it's tasty. Or will they get a worm, half a worm? (laughs) Or a mushy spot, a brown spot? The solution is not to go back and try to... try to fulfill all the law. That'll just get you into hotter water. The key is to go back to Jesus and be more and more desperate for him. You know what the crisis sanctification is that the Christian Missionary Alliance teaches? It's the crises that when we realize that not only can't we save ourselves, we only can be saved by Jesus, but we can't sanctify ourselves either. We can't sanctify ourselves. And when we realize that, we have the opportunity to be filled with his Holy Spirit. May I suggest that we ponder the goodness of God in our life. What problem are you going through right now? If you just close your eyes as we close today, just close your eyes and ask God, help me to understand where I don't believe you're good today. Some clues are worry, frustration, anger, pain. Father, free us. You said you have saved us so that we'd be free, free indeed that we wouldn't be bound up again. Lord, help us to experience your goodness. Lord, like Joseph at the end of his life, he said, man, they meant it for evil, but you meant it for good. Lord, help us to learn that not at the end of our lives, but today. Even in the situation that we're facing today, draw us to yourself. Lord, may we be people of action that pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen.